Ackerman. Elliot, just finish this book. I got it on tape. <laughs> Ain't care much for the ending. I mean, a story could have a mediocre beginning and a middle. Oftentimes it does, but always got to have a wow ending. Otherwise, what's the point? Hello, friend. Hello, friend. This is the Mr. Roadbot podcast, and I'm Margaret, and I'm here with Henry to, to talk about the season three finale. Hey there, cuz. How's it going? What's up, bro? <laughs> um, is it impolite or improper to say bro to a woman? It's totally fitting in San Francisco. This is such a big bromance of a city. The cuz thing was sort of funny. I'm from Philadelphia, and I have family members who happen to be cousins, and that's how they all refer to each other. Hey, cuz. I know, I knew a family who all call each other Norm. <laughs> I swear to God, uh, and, I, and I've totally forgot about that until you said this thing with cuz. And then it reminded me of this family, like I knew back in Southern California, where everyone in the family called each other Norm. Like, hey, Norm. Like the mom, the dad, like the son to the father. Everyone called each other Norm. That's pretty funny. It reminds me of George Foreman. You know him, the boxer and entrepreneur, creator of the George Foreman Grill. He named all of his sons George Foreman. And he apparently said it's because he wanted them to always have something in common. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to really say about that, George. <laughs> we are not here to talk about the George Foreman Grill or about Cuz in general, but we are here to talk about the season finale written and directed by the show creator, Sam Esmail. What did you think of Shutdown-R, Henry? Pretty eventful episode and fairly straightforward. Uh, aside from the kind of side uh, plot, I guess, with Angela, a lot of it kind of unfolded from point A to point B and actually knocked down a fair amount of dominoes along the way. We encountered various characters throughout this episode where I was saying to myself, oh, Irving, he steals every scene he's in. And then I would say the same thing to myself about Carly Chaikin, who plays Darlene, or Joey Badass, who plays Leon. So many strong performers on the show. And you're right, I think I think the Philip Price stuff and the Angela stuff got good at the very end. We did open with the Dark Army breaking into Elliot's apartment and looking around and trying to find where Elliot is. Elliot shortly thereafter discovers they were in his apartment and then he realizes that Darlene is in trouble. And you know that uh, extra apartment that Elliot has right next door to his yet, yet again pays dividends. You know, and it makes me think, like, maybe everyone would find a lot of use from having a second apartment right next door to theirs, just sit empty all the time. That would be so cool. You know, I have some friends who live in San Francisco, and they're part of the sort of, I don't want to say old school San Francisco, because that implies certain things, but they converted this unused room in their apartment building to into a speakeasy. And it's not an actual speakeasy. That's what they call it. But it's just this room that was never used. It's sort of like this little room they go into and it's so beautifully decorated. No one's the wiser. And it's a fabulous place, the speakeasy. 
Mm. It, it sounds like a happy room. It is a happy room because my friend's a really good decorator. And so she has a nice big leather couch set up there. But you're right. I mean, it's so handy having that extra space away from the main space. It pretty much probably saved Elliot's life for all we know. Oh, it definitely saved his life. I don't see him engaging in a pitched kung fu battle with those dark army warriors and winning. Yeah. And maybe they weren't too clued in regarding White Rose's plans for Elliot. And maybe White Rose, she didn't even have those plans in place at that point. She seems like she's very adaptive as we've spoken about before. But I did like the aggressive stance that Elliot was taking towards White Rose, like he has her figured out on some level, it seems. Yeah, and it's kind of setting in motion, I think, uh, a central conflict for the upcoming season. It seems like this episode to me was the writers and the creators uh, resolving certain threads and then setting uh, the stage for the next season uh, with the conflict to come. Oh, yeah. I have some interesting theories myself about where that might head. And I can't wait to talk about that with you. We do cut to Darlene at the FBI headquarters and and Santiago proceeds to take her away. And I just want to say in general, I thought the actress who plays Darlene did just a really great job. I mean, she always does, but she really communicated palpable fear later on in the story. And her incredulity at this point with Santiago was also pretty believable. And I I really like how they make her the past few episodes look so rough. I mean, she looks like she hasn't slept in days. Yeah. And she can really kind of emote through those eyes, you know, like in so many of those scenes, where she's just trying to convey things with a look to Dom uh, when Santiago is trying to chat Dom up and trying to figure out if he can get away with Darlene. Like Darlene is looking at Dom and giving subtle cues with her face. And a lot of that is just through her eyes. It seems like these last couple episodes, I, I just feel like Darlene is emoting a lot with her her eyes, especially. This season, she's really been pretty vulnerable, if not a little bit unwise with some of her plans. Dom, however, could be criticized for that same thing. She finds Santiago taking Darlene away, and Santiago tries to deter her, but then Dom just gets clobbered, which we all saw that coming, huh? Yeah, I mean, I was kind of surprised that she left herself open to that uh given the caution and you know the general kind of kick-assness of her character uh seems kind of uh out of character for her to be taken by surprise and i think that rami malik has had so much opportunity as well this season to show such a range of acting and intensity season one he was sort of that unreliable narrator season two even more so and he was sort of confined i mean literally but this season he's taking on white rose We see him deliver this really frantic voiceover at Coney Island, and this is where Elliot realizes that the Dark Army has 600,000 systems out there, and it's really hard for him to triangulate where Darlene might be hiding. I love the scenes at Coney Island. I know I kind of go on about that a lot. You ever read the Ferris wheel at Coney Island? I have ridden the Ferris wheel at Coney Island and those scenes brought back so many memories. Have you? No, I have not. Okay. So I have to tell you when Elliot and Mr. Robot went to get on the Ferris wheel, first of all, I think the guy working the Coney Island booth, I think he really works there. And I want to say I recognized him. I could tell that the scenes that were quote inside the Ferris wheel 
cage because that's what it really is. We're, we're done against a green screen because the actual things that you sit in on that Ferris wheel, I mean, you feel like you're a rat in a cage. I mean, it's these heavy, raw iron, almost great grating. You can barely see out. I don't know if you noticed, but did you see they were just surrounded by metal? <laughs> yeah, it kind of had a welcome to the Terra Dome kind of feel to it. That is one of the most terrifying Ferris wheels I've ever been on. I'm sort of half joking, but yeah, those Ferris wheel cars are like little tiny confined spaces and it's the most crickety ride I've ever been on. Only second to the haunted house ride at Coney Island. I don't think it's been updated since the 1950s. It was the strangest place, Coney Island, I have it built up in my mind. I'm sure everyone who lives in New York is like, oh, will you just stop? <laughs> you know, it's interesting that with all the kind of amusement park and theme park accidents that have been in the news the last couple of years, nothing's happened at Coney Island, despite all these rickety, creaky uh, rides that they have. I was thinking that too. First of all, when I was on that Ferris wheel, I, I went on it a few months before I moved away from New York City. Then when I was on the haunted house ride with these little rickety cars that rode on a track through the so-called haunted house. I felt like I was riding through an asbestos wonderland. It was just so old school and decrepit. It's, it's like uh, you see the signs, we love lead. Coney Island is such an interesting mixture of a lot of the old time signage is still around for a lot of the different stores. And they're really super creepy. I wish I had a better camera. There is a mermaid parade every year at Coney Island. And if any of our <laughs> listeners work for the Coney Island Tourism Board, please get in touch with Margaret. She'd love to do a spot. <laughs> I know. Anyway, we start to see Mr. Robot and Elliot start to reunite. And Mr. Robot was really upset at first saying, you don't just get to summon me when you want. I'm not your genie out of a bottle. And they kind of work through their issues. And we see Santiago trying to convince Dom and Darlene He's not a bad guy. You don't understand what they put me through. And in retrospect, I mean, I guess he has a point. Well, yeah, an axe to the head kind of uh, clarifies <laughs> things. I, I think it's interesting, the the scene with Elliot and Mr. Robot, just going back to that for a second, in that we actually have seen Elliot and Mr. Robot communicating by etching stuff into mirrors and glass, right? So just being able to sit down across from each other and have a conversation is not something that happens very often. So I think it's also kind of good to point out that it's unusual as far as the story universe goes for the two of them to be able to converse so easily. Yeah, so the first season we saw them around each other a lot more, but they were definitely antagonistic with each other. And then the whole second season and most of this season, they really have been apart. Maybe this is a sign of things to come for season four, which was announced just, I think, today or yesterday. So a season four of Mr. Robot is happening. It's going to become buddy comedy with uh, Christian Slater and Rami Malek. Uh. <laughs> I would love that. I'm a super fan of both of them. Rami Malek has impressed me. He's in that film about Freddie Mercury of Queen, and there was some drama around that film set. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's interesting when stories like that come out, uh, I guess... There were some issues between Rami Malek and the director. Was it Brian Singer? That's correct. You know, in the in the pressure cooker of making a film, there's a lot of personality flaws that get exposed. And I would suggest that if there is one industry that is potentially 
more notorious than on other industries, which shall remain nameless. I would say the film industry is, I'll tell you, I don't know how much um, you've worked in the film industry. I, I'd imagine you've definitely have a little bit or a lot maybe. And I have a little bit as well. And it is one of the most, in some circles, it's a pretty corrupt industry. I guess that's all I'll say. You know, I, what I've noticed is that anytime there is an industry where aside from the money, there's some prestige attached to it, which makes it more competitive because a, a lot of people are attracted to that prestige in addition to the money it tends to have a lot of really kind of uh, appalling behavior uh, because people who eventually accrue power and wealth uh, are able to treat people largely as disposable because there's always people ready to take their place. My grandmother was in early silent movies when, when uh, in the 1920s in Philadelphia, or actually, yeah, the 1920s. She was an actress in the early silent films, and she ended up quitting because she was supposed to have her hair cut into a, a, a flapper bob, I guess, and she was supposed to kiss somebody in the movie, and she didn't want to do either, so that ended her career in the movies. It's definitely one of those industries. As there's a big sort of divide between Northern California and Southern California in a lot of ways. And Silicon Valley and Hollywood often do not get along at all with each other because the styles of doing business are so dramatically different. Yeah, and I think that to me was also largely explainable by what was in uh, short supply and what's not. Like what it seemed like to me was that uh, even like the willingness to share ideas um, was let me be uh, less so in Southern California than in Northern California because it seems like in Northern California, what's not scarce are the ideas. It's really just more about the execution. Whereas I think in Southern California, people feel like their ideas are more special. Yeah, and everything's done on a handshake, or that's the impression that a lot of people want to give you that everything's done in a handshake. And then when that happens, people get screwed. I've seen that a few times. Always get it in writing. There is one thing that's interesting that I noticed when Elliot and Mr. Robot were interacting at first when they were going through Santiago's apartment was that Mr. Robot commented that they did not get paid for the 5-9 hack. That was the first time I ever heard of any kind of money mentioned with that operation. Yeah, me too. Uh, good catch. Yeah, I don't know if it means anything. I thought this was a really cool scene where Elliot found the red barbecue menu and he realizes there's a cipher written on the menu and in decoding that cipher it enables him to find the coordinates of where Darlene and Dom are being held and this is one of the scenes where I'm like Bobby Cannavale steals the show. Irving shows up. I really like the Irving character. He's so weird. Very weird. <laughs> but he knows story structure. So Irving and I have something in common. He seems to like Pulp Fiction like I do. And the book he pulls off of Santiago's shelf is called Death Likes It Hot, a book written by Gore Vidal, the famous novelist, under the pseudonym of Edgar Box, of all things. In the meantime, Angela slowly figures out she's at Philip Price's palatial house. And she has a very nice house manager, I guess he is helping her out, offering her pancakes. 
I don't know. Why does Angela always sort of land on her feet, even when she doesn't deserve to? Well, you know, the silver spoon that uh, she wasn't born with may have some biological component in her case. Yeah, I think we see that later. And I think that's what saves this whole subplot, in my opinion. I thought the drive out where Irving was taking Mr. Robot, well, taking Elliot, and unbeknownst to him, Mr. Robot was tagging along. I thought the overhead shot of the car driving up that long and winding road, to quote the Beatles, uh, was really beautifully done. And I wonder if they're using a lot of drone photography for that camera work. I wonder that myself. Uh, There uh, have been a lot of really interesting uh, camera work uh, throughout season three, in my opinion. I'll touch on a few other scenes that I thought were also pretty beautiful as far as that goes. Elliot and Irving show up at the barn where Darlene is being held and Leon's there and Dom is there and Santiago is just like, it's all good. It's all good. We can fix this. And then Irving's like, all right. I love when Irving sort of is given this impossible situation. And then all he does is says, all right. It's very East Coast. I love it. Yeah. And you just kind of figure something out and make it work. Did you at any point, however, think that either Dom or Darlene were going to get killed? Mm, I thought there was a possibility, but uh, when he ultimately decided to uh, take out Santiago, I thought that was, it just didn't ring true for me. Like, it didn't seem like something a smart criminal would do. He definitely seemed to have an axe to grind with him. Unfortunately, they couldn't bury the hatchet. (laughs) I do, again, I thought this is where Darlene was just looking so terrified, and I was really believing that fear coming from her. And then there was this really interesting part, and I think this is something maybe we can talk about a little bit if you want, was the fact that Elliot realized that White Rose was watching them, that the place had a a camera. And it turns out White Rose, she was watching from her tub having a bath. And it really led me to think about all of the different events that sometimes get streamed on Periscope or Facebook Live and this whole sort of, I don't know, observer culture we're in where we're sort of spectators on every minutia of life. And White Rose was kind of doing that on on a grand level, right? Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring that up. I was thinking about that uh, earlier this week in the context of this book uh, called Transparent Society that uh, David Brin wrote. David Brin's a science fiction writer. I think he also worked for NASA, and he wrote this book, Transparent Society, where he argues that the traditional notions of privacy that libertarians and other folks try to apply to the internet is uh, unworkable, given the incentives involved for the expansion of surveillance. So what he argues should be done instead is to make it transparent so that you know when you're being watched and you know by whom. And so that creates at least a more equal power relationship than just being observed and not knowing it. It's interesting. First of all, Elliot was the only one who noticed that the camera was there. I mean, I guess the others were too terrified, but even Santiago, who's an FBI agent. And hey, if there are any FBI agents listening to our podcast, welcome. (laughs) That he would have thought that maybe the place might be bugged or there have to be cameras. I mean, this is the dark army after all. This is not, these are not people who have 
AOL email accounts, or maybe they do, but for other reasons. Although they are perfectly willing to stick a USB drive into their computer and then stick it back into their mainframe. Yeah, no kidding. We find out that Irving just uses this as an opportunity to get some chopping done because he's really stressed out. And we were hearkening back to that scene with Terrell where where Irving tried to teach Terrell how to chop wood, but both of those those psychopaths seem really good at it. Neither of them needs any lessons. Bobby Cannavale did an amazing job of completely unraveling and letting it rip. Well, I think what was disturbing to me was as the camera panned away and you saw him like burying the hatchet into like the chest and head of uh you know the figure, like you could see it kind of moving with the blow of each axe. It was pretty gruesome. And then the uh the mature audience warning came on right after that, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, and Irving tries to tell Dom before it happens, look at the sky, look at the sky. Reference earlier in the season where they talk about looking up, you don't look up. This is where Dom discovers and is pretty readily convinced that she works for the Dark Army now. That's going to be one of the, the setups for like uh, season four. You know, Dark Army might think that they have Dom, but I think part of the story will be Dom trying to figure out how to stick it to the Dark Army. Yeah, I mean, was it convincing that Irving said, if you don't do this, I'll still kill you and then I'll kill your whole family? I mean, I guess they would do that to have a mole, especially since Santiago was conveniently gone. Yeah, maybe this is how they roll. Like maybe Santiago was in Dom's position earlier and then they basically just go through people this way. I definitely think that's what Santiago was referencing at, in the car earlier in the episode. And, when, and earlier in that scene, I was thinking, oh, Santiago, you're you're just so full of excuses. But then when I saw the scene with Dom, I thought, oh, well, I guess I could see why Santiago was saying what he did. And they did try to redeem him a little bit. He tried to save Dom because even though he completely bashes her this whole season, he finally comes out with the fact that she's a rising star. I just treated her like crap. Yeah. And even when he was trying to be good to me, it just made it more satisfying when he was finally <laughs> shut up. <laughs> but Leon, who I think, again, here I go again, just knocks it out of the park in every scene. I can't get enough of Joey Badass's character. But as soon as he sees Dom come back in, he knows that she went through her initiation. It also makes you wonder what was his initiation. Yeah, exactly. What? What? But he recognizes it. Uh, I think what the show is doing really well this season uh, and the two seasons before is develop a bunch of really interesting characters they can bring back into the plot as needed. The Dark Army, they're in waiting mode. Nobody's going to get killed, at least right now. Somebody is arriving. And maybe Elliot thought it was going to be White Rose, but it turns out that Grant is rolling up in a car and there's a song playing. It's a Cambodian version of the song Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down, written by Sonny Bono and sung by Nancy Sinatra Jr. This is a really beautiful version of the song and also rather foretelling of what is about to happen. Grant, he just, uh, he's too intense for me, that guy. He's a believer. He is a believer. Really feels sort of sorry for him, but he also gave into 
his jealousies as was pointed out to him. And you can see how that affects his decision-making. He just can't understand. And, and we've all maybe been in this position before where there's somebody who seems like they can do no wrong. Grant thinks I do all of this for White Rose and she's still fixated on Elliot. That's often the case when there is someone at the top that people are ultimately drawing their power from, right? So in many instances, it can be like a particular person that is fixated on a particular person and gives them that legitimacy or aura that everyone then just sort of feeds into. Absolutely. And, you know, one person who is over that has been there and done that, and I thought this was a pretty interesting reveal about Irving, is that it seems like Irving used to be the former Grant. It seems like Irving was was in some sort of relationship with White Rose beyond just uh, employee, employer. And he had his time in the sun with White Rose. And that's why Irving knows how far he can push her. And I liked how when Grant said, no, Irving, you can't go to the Sandals and Barbados. You have to stick here and get work done. Irving knew that Grant had no sway and that White Rose would support him, which is really crazy reveal. Wasn't expecting that. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about whether or not uh, he would. He's actually a true believer, like Grant. He doesn't seem to be. He seems like he is just. This is the way the world is, and I'll either play along and make make the best out of it. And I'm going to write my book. How much do you want to bet that book will come out? Maybe this summer or in the fall. Oh, that'd be really interesting. Yeah. What was the name of the book Irving was writing? Beach Towel. <laughs> I see it now. Along with the book of Trump. Bundled oh. together in your <laughs> neighborhood store. Yeah. I like this other aspect of Grant and Elliot interacting together. And I'd like to hear what you think. Both times we saw them interact, Grant misread Elliot. So Grant first thought that stage three was real and believed Elliot. And then and Grant was wrong. And then when Elliot tried to convince Grant that he hacked into the Dark Army's system, which does seem rather incredulous, Grant mis misinterpreted that as well and did, did not believe him when Elliot was telling the truth. And uh, Grant just wasn't reading Elliot right at all throughout. And I think that's one of the reasons maybe that he uh, lost and White Rose decided to side with Elliot. We saw that with Philip Price, uh, White Rose told him, like, basically, I was just teaching you a lesson. Like, I just asked once, right? So in that universe or that kind of world, like, to be wrong twice to the same person, like, what use are you to them? I've worked in a few environments like that where there was just no room for any error and it was a really big deal of course nobody would be encouraged to put a gun to their heads if they made a mistake but yeah it's a really high pressure environment and can't mess up and unfortunately grant messed up in his judgment do you think when white rose dumped him do you think grant was instructed to kill himself or do you think he just took that upon himself to do I think that's what the the code or the traditions of the Dark Army required him to do. I wonder how Irving managed to get away with not having to do that. I'm sure there will be some backstory episode in season four or five that will explain this. Oh, that would be so awesome. I would love to see Irving and White Rose hanging out and interacting together. You know, both of them in a, in a bathtub 
white terry cloth robes. Yeah. I think I can see it. I think they both would do a great job. And then, of course, we go to the scene of Philip saying, Luke, I am your father. It feels like at this point, any sort of hidden paternity scene in any movie just seems so cliche. Like, really? Is it really that hard to tell someone that you're their father or mother at this point? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I saw that coming like we all did a million miles away. And so, but this is the point where, where I did enjoy Philip trying to teach Angela Accept that you've been conned. That's the first step to recovering is just accept what happened and move on. And I thought that was excellent advice. Yeah, and to not throw away any more time going after retribution. Because he was just like, it's not going to happen. Just accept that you've been conned and move on. Like, don't try to waste any more time. And I'm wondering if that's what he's going to do or if he's going to try to get back at White Roos. Oh, I'm pretty sure that... Angela and Philip are going to be a a terrible twosome team. <laughs> and they are going to look for, as Angela said, retribution because she finally was was de-brainwashed. She had that brainwashing removed. It took some time. Uh, White Rose is extremely good at her craft, I guess. I did love how Elliot revealed to Grant before he killed himself that that the Russian government hired the Dark Army to hack into the DNC. That's pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, and another interesting real-world tie-in by the show. Um, And I I do think it's worth mentioning about uh, Angela and Philip Price's interaction that much allusion is made to what White Rose's ultimate project is. And it does seem to allude to some sort of time travel or some sort of ability to undo what's been done. Like even Grant, when he takes his life, or what White Rose tells Grant to take his life, talks about, I will find you once I'm successful. Like, I will find you. So it makes it seem like there's some sort of like time travel, multi-dimensional travel thing being discussed. You know, you're right. I overlooked that comment because it did seem a little bit out of place. But now that you put it in the context of the time travel motif, I can see that being uh, something you're onto something there. And Grant, before he, he killed himself, apparently what he said was, take care of her. So he held no animosity for White Rose. And White Rose did say she loved him. So yeah, maybe there's there's that element. Or maybe White Rose was just... Uh, bamboozling Grant the same way she did Angela. That's another possibility. Well, it explains why people in the white uh, dark army are willing to take their own life uh, in furtherance of the cause. If they somehow believe that they're giving their lives to some sort of project that allows for dead people to be brought back to life, then what's, you know, what better way to show your dedication than take your life if it will be restored? I love that theory. I think that's completely spot on. And I've been hearing some interesting theories about the reason the Congo is so important. Have you had any theories or read anything about that too? Time traveling gorillas? (laughs) Well, there's some theory that it's tied to the... Um, the the water, the hydraulics energy needed to basically keep the blockchain currency going on a worldwide level. Hmm. Like, uh, explain. Like, well, we know how in the news recently there's been a lot of discussion about how much energy it takes to power Bitcoin and blockchain in general. 
And I, I don't know, I've, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but there are all these comparisons like, this is what it takes to power three cities. And that's what it takes to do one Bitcoin transaction. I'm totally exaggerating, but there have been a lot of um, articles lately about the energy impact that distributed blockchain um, currency has on the infrastructure. Well, I know that for miners, for instance, it can generate a lot of heat because of all the servers that they run to mine Bitcoin to do the cryptographic calculations that uh, are required to create a Bitcoin. Uh, like there was this one city in Russia uh, close to, I guess, Siberia that uh, is uh, kind of a hub of Bitcoin mining activity. And the guy there actually designed a home that uses the excess heat from the servers to like power the, the heat up the home. Gives you an idea how much energy is being used. That's remarkable. Did you know there, I heard, I just heard the other day, there is a term that people in the Bay Area who have coined literally called no coiners. And that refers obviously to people who don't have Bitcoin. Wow. Talk about FOMO. I know, so bitter. I, I read that and I was I was thinking, San Francisco, first first you're making fun of people who don't have Bitcoin, then your SPCA is hiring robots to shoo homeless people away. Wow, you know, it, it does seem like we're living in an age where if the bubble pops, people will point to a lot of these things as a sign that it was coming. Yeah. I have a friend who lives in New York and he is not a fan of San Francisco at all. And he swears to me up and down and he's been saying it for years. And I used to not really put much credit into it. He says that it's just going to take one little tipping point and that city's going to go just go wild because of the the disparity between the haves and have-nots. I just saw something that said 26% of people in Silicon Valley have food food issues in terms of they're worried about where they're going to get their next meal. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, on to happier things. Yes, the theory is that the Congo is somehow tied to the dominion of the cryptocurrency. And Elliot, there was some great tech that was referenced throughout this whole episode. And I just want to take this opportunity to give a shout out to Maria Varmazis. I hope I'm saying her, your name correctly. Maria writes for Naked Security and does a weekly post uh, based on the security and tech elements that are used in the show. I've been communicating with her back and forth on Twitter. So I don't know if she's listening to this, but I really do want to give credit. This is where we see Elliot gets into Sentinel thanks to, to a reluctant Dom who hates Darlene. And he de-encrypts Romero's keylogger files because he knows Romero likes old school hip hop and knows what, what to use to get that going. But then realizes that Romero wasn't the one who had all that information to reverse 5.9. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting to see Elliot kind of progress from thinking that it was someone else to realizing that it was his alter ego who actually uh, made it, makes it possible to reverse everything. It was beautiful. And, you know, I, I guess there was an obvious answer that that's really where where the key was, was when Elliot reunited with his alter ego. Uh, you know, we did see Elliot finally admit to everyone and to himself that he wasn't pushed out of the window, that he jumped because he had a temper tantrum. So there, 
when he was finally able to admit that and to admit that he wasn't talking to his father, I think maybe he forgave himself a little bit. Yeah. And, it, you know, it kind of speaks to all the repressed anger and rage. You know, I've, I think I've mentioned before that Elliot's a really angry person who just can't kind of express that anger in, in, a, in a way that most of us would recognize. And a lot of that from, you know, I think in psychology, they would say that that sublimated anger or that repressed anger could cause personality splits and things like this. Uh, so it's interesting to see him kind of realize that it was his anger that created the the narrative that he's been telling himself about how he was hurt by his father um, and that actually the reality was much different. Yeah. And this is where we discovered that. And again, I want to thank Naked Security, uh, the article that Maria Varmazzi's wrote, where she talks about how Mr. Robot embedded the data in, in the CD to restore the eCorp database of and and it was stored in a photo of Elliot and his dad when they went to see the movie Back to the Future, so more of the time travel references. And the idea of hiding data inside an image is called, and this again, according to her article, and I've seen this before, steganography, which is hidden writing in an image. And it's something that's been around for thousands of years. It's just um, done in the computer world in a different way. Yeah. I mean, on the simplest level, it can be kind of symbology that would be hit present in old images or illuminated manuscripts. And more recently in our computing age, steganography was a way to hide files inside of other files. Um, so like one example, I guess it's not exactly steganography, but you can also think of it as encoding like the way in which people would use text files on Usenet to store image and video files uh, for transmission. It, all, this way of transcoding and encoding images from different formats allows you to hide things inside of something else. I'm so fascinated by the fact that digital creations are often based on other antecedents in our history or our culture. I did a talk recently on robots and machine learning. And I was inspired by this BBC podcast on the history of robots. And I was astounded that the concept of a robot goes back, again, thousands of years. I mean, in Greek mythology, Hephaestus, the god of the iron and the, and the smelting, would create robots for himself and for the gods on Mount Olympus. And the Colossus of what was it? The, the Colossus of, was it Thebes? Was also sort of a robotic character. Anyway. Colossus of Rhodes. Oh, gosh, that's right. The Colossus of Rhodes was a robotic character. And even da Vinci designed robotic men. Or in other figurines. Like, I remember there was this lot, mechanical lion that he was supposed to have made that would present a rose. Um, yeah, it, it's like a hero of Alexandria was a well-known inventor considered the greatest inventor of all time who designed a series of automata uh, using steam power and also uh, gears and other mechanical uh, kind of mechanisms. Um, hey, did you know what the difference between AI and machine learning is? I do. Did you want to explain it to the audience? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, a lot of times these terms are used interchangeably, machine learning and AI, when in fact they're actually a little bit different and distinct. Uh, and they're somewhat overlapping, which makes it confusing. But machine learning is traditionally the uh, the application of 
technology, where usually algorithms, to large amounts of data that allows you to predict uh, predict things, right? And so things that utilize machine learning will make create a series of predictions based on past data and past behavior. So you can and you can use these predictions to guide uh, intelligent systems or designs. Whereas AI is the uh, artificial application of reason to a specific set of data or facts to drive an intelligent outcome. That's right. Machine learning doesn't require human input or manual input to improve or to respond or react. Bots use adaptive machine learning to improve how they interact with people on social networks. And then there's something called neural networks, right? That's something that's also quite different from pure AI and machine learning. And that's another interesting thing that is being developed at light speed. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I was uh, hearing about this a particular use of machine learning that someone showed on Reddit where they could train uh, this uh, train this model to recognize uh, images and uh, you apply that technique to put famous people's heads on porn films. Did you hear about this? No. And they could, do, they could do it kind of like perfectly because to do this well, you would have to go like frame by frame and impose the the other face. And if you train, if you use machine learning, you can train a machine to replace that image in every single frame. Um, and so he was able to show how using kind of off the shelf technology, he was able to create this uh process that would take any celebrity's photo and put it into a porn film. The neural network is a type of artificial intelligence that looks at all of the different discourse in a given area. And Henry, tell me if this is how you see neural networks as well. It'll compile that data and then from that will generate other kinds of information or content. So I've seen a lot of people create avatar character names based on a different different game worlds or would create different spells to be used in various RPG games based on neural network patterns. With all of this stuff, if you don't start out with a, a good range of data, for example, it can really have these systems go haywire. It can really prejudice the outcomes. And Elliot essentially control alt deletes his hack, or like that's what we're led to believe, huh? Yeah, it certainly seems that way. When he hits enter and the screen goes black, that's what we're led to believe. Do you think that's going to be the case, or? Yeah, I. Uh, although I could also see them starting season four with him pressing enter and then discovering that somehow <laughs> his command has been intercepted and kind of unrolling a sequence of events from there. Yeah. And, and do you have any theories about what White Rose sees in Elliot? Uh, not sure what White Rose sees in Elliot. I think that's, uh, that's at least been uh, to me very ambiguous or vague. Um, Seems like he has some sort of special talent or gift that White Rose recognizes, but why she values him so much, I don't know. Do you have a theory? Because he's hot. <laughs> I, th- I don't know. He's talented. He gets things done. He's focused. He's not um, deterred by petty insecurities. I-, I don't know. We're kind of burying the surprise ending. I thought maybe you would be happy about this with the reappearance of the brave traveler. You predicted he might reappear, didn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, he was too good of a character for the show to throw away. Twist and turns. Do you want to play? What would you choose? Have you chosen one for tonight? Uh, give me a second. I was actually trying to think about that. I will give you a second. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm funny. <laughs> As it gets later and later. Um <laughs> It gets later and later. Uh, what can you? Maybe you can think of one. Which would you choose? Okay. Which would you choose? Net neutrality or no net neutrality? Oh God. Uh, I would choose net neutrality. You mean seeing the FCC commissioner dancing around with a lightsaber and dressed up as Santa Claus doesn't convince you that we don't need common carrier status for our information superhighway? Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, screw net neutrality. Let's just, you know, whichever whichever bit can pay the most bucks should get the right of way, right? So, you know, let's just uh, let's just pay enough money and we'll get our ISPs to block all other podcasts but ours. Yes, and you and I just want to put a sh- shout out that if anyone who is listening wants to see about keeping net neutrality as the rule of the land, I mean, first of all, there must be about 15 states who are suing the administration to retain net neutrality. But, you know, we also have the ability to call our our Congress right now, our representatives in Congress, and, and ask them to invoke the Congressional Review Act so that they can vote on overturning the FCC anti-net neutrality ruling. There are some commissioners at the FCC who have been incredibly outspoken about protecting it. Unfortunately, it was two women against three, so they were outvoted by one vote. Our democracy was affected by basically one vote. Uh, but the good thing about a democracy is that you can always uh, vote your way out of it if people are organized and are willing to work. I agree. I am not somebody who believes in giving up. I think this is a fight. It's well worth fighting for. And do you have a word that you would think about or associate with this episode? One word? Reboot. Reboot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good one. I sort of had two words. Oh, so my first word was pensive. It's just a really intense episode. But then I thought it was also kind of predictable. So I'll go with pensive, but I have predictable nagging at me in the back of my head. Predictable. <laughs> Proud of the alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been great talking about this season with you, Henry, and with our listeners. And you should always feel free to contact us at the hello friend podcast at gmail.com. Any predictions for uh, season four? I thought a little bit about this when I watched this episode the second time. One prediction is I think Dom is going to go out of her way to make Darlene's life miserable. That's one prediction. can see that. How about you? I think uh, Terrell and Price are going to feature more uh, in a conflict. Um, As White Rose continues her plot and plans, I think Price is going to try to move against White Rose. Uh, I think White Rose will try to use Terrell to work against Price. Uh, and it seems like Elliot and his Mr. Robot character will be united in their efforts against the Dark Army and uh, perhaps a couple of allies there as well. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, right? I mean, just because there's a momentary glimmer of hope doesn't mean that this is not going to be an ongoing battle. And clearly the invisible hand is at play. Well, and and also what White Rose has planned has to actually in some way be bigger in scale and scope and threat than the 5-9 hack, right? And the 5-9 hack literally like shut down the economy. So what is the Dark Army planning? What is White Rose planning that is actually more significant? Yeah, I mean, I really think it can only be to introduce a world currency. And it's it's interesting. Today, Bitcoin plummeted $3,000, I believe, in one day. Yeah, and you hear about people taking out like second mortgages. And I know in China, uh, Korea and Japan in particular, there's been a lot of speculation and people trying to ride cryptocurrency to uh, growth. And it seems like a lot of the smarter economists and investors out there are looking at this and seeing a classic speculative bubble. Yeah, especially because I, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's he's pretty, pretty excellent back-end CTO engineer type. And I was going on with him about crypto kitties and just, just, you know, just killing myself because I was like, I could have made crypto kitties. I mean, it's a great idea. And for those who haven't seen it, crypto kitties is basically a virtual pet that run that is monetized through um, cryptocurrency. And he pointed out that he has huge concerns building uh, an extensive infrastructure on on um, blockchain currency because he doesn't think it can scale, scale. And maybe he was speaking to those energy consumption issues we were talking about just now. I think it's also... Uh can be an issue of just like transaction volume and the ability of that particular blockchain to sustain all the applications that are trying to use it. I don't know if you've ever tried to download like an Ethereum wallet, for instance, but you have to download like the entire blockchain. And it's like a lot of gigabytes. It's really, really large. Yeah, I actually had a tiny bit of Bitcoin from one of those wallets. And for the life of me, they went out of business and I lost whatever Bitcoin. I, it was minimal, but it probably would have been worth you know, a couple hundred dollars. It gave out Bitcoin to try their wallet. Bye-bye wallet and bye-bye Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Henry, thank you so much. Is there anything else we should talk about before we close? Uh, just for our listeners out there, thanks so much for uh, listening uh, to Margaret and myself talk about one of our favorite shows, Mr. Robot. All season, we're looking forward to season four. And if they do come out with a book, uh, you know, we'll uh, do a special podcast to review that book as well. Thank you guys all so much. Yeah. And next time you have some Red Wheelbarrow barbecue, maybe you'll think of us. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bye. Margaret. Hey. Oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't get too worked up, miss. Just look at the sky. Take a deep breath. Try to enjoy the fresh air. Wait, wait. I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks.
He wore black and I wore white. He would always win the fight. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful sound. Bang, bang. My baby shot me down. Seasons came and changed the time. When I grew up, I called him mine. He would always laugh and say, "Remember when we used to play?" Bang, bang. I shot you down, bang bang. You hit the ground, bang bang. That awful sound, bang bang. I used to shoot you down. Thank you. 